SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Seize your destiny, Mr. Torrance. Unmask. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and we are finishing up our look at the uh, 90s, the Shining miniseries directed by Mick Garris, with a look at Night 3, the final night out of three, uh, final episode out of three that aired. Uh, with me is Thrasher. I'm coming for you, Doc. Just try not to blow out the back of my head first. And Alex. Tony is the Danny of the future. Danny is the Tony of the past. Very good. <laughs> so, yes, this is where they, they wrap things up. And uh, there's less of uh, Jack going crazy, as uh, you might expect. But then once it happens, I think there's some intense moments here. Um, it's just, for me at least, with the cubic films, with uh, him and the axe, is, is a lot more iconic than him with the mallet. Mm. You can definitely get some more business done with an axe, but to get a door down with a mallet, that's going to take some work. So, yes, you, you I mean, it's still, you know, it has it. that blunt edge. I could see people using it as a murder weapon, but that's why it's made from fine Alaskan hardwood timber. Uh, and yes. uh, as you're hinting at, a lot of the beginning of this is old Danny is, is getting scared and he, he wants to have his uh, friend uh, Dick Halloran come back for him and help him, even though he's in vacation in Miami. And his uh, shining powers are so big that it makes it look like a poor old Halloran is having a stroke. Yeah. You're stumbling around. And I'm not sure if that needed to be done for for so many scenes. Well, well, it's, he's hit one after, and I think what it is, is when, when the, when uh, Halloran is first contacted by Danny's shining, uh, you know, Dick is at that diner just enjoying like a pleasant Sunday breakfast. And it's pretty and it's 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 pretty cool. Uh, like like it's it's like a very real scene and it's in Florida and it stands in very sharp contrast to everything that's going on at the Overlook at that time. It's bright and sunny. All the surfaces are clean. Everybody's having friendly chats. But yeah, like he he looks like he has a uh, he looks like he's having like a cardiac episode, and Melvin Van Peebles sells it. Yeah, like I, I could almost believe that they were filming him, and he actually had a heart murmur. Like it it, it looks so natural when he does it, but he he has like three in a row in that one scene, so, and and once that third one shows up, it's kind of goofy, and you don't need to see it again. But then in some later scenes, we see him get hit by the, the Shining again. But it's just great to see him kind of like lift himself up off the table. No, no, I'm okay. I've got business to attend to. And he just kind of like has to force himself out of that diner back in, back into his car, which is the same Cadillac from earlier. So I can only assume he drove that all the way to Florida. 
Yeah, which is a little mad, if you ask me. Um, well, I mean, he's I, had plenty of time, and maybe he was seeing, like, the sights along the way, like the Grand that's Canyon. A, that's a baller ride right there. I would drive that everywhere. Um, I love that scene, too, because, like, like, the Scatman Crothers, Dick Halloran is, like, a, he comes off as, like, an intense dude, whereas this Dick Halloran is, like, a cool guy. You Like, you can tell yeah. this Dick Halloran has, like, a specific handshake for, like, every staff member of the Overlook, you know? <laughs> I can yeah. see him being like, Cindy, that's my girl. Like, oh, Tony, that's my man there. Don't leave me hanging. Um, and, he, you know, he's like, you can keep your prince. I'll take the old soul hits any day of the week. But it's funny, though. It looks like he's wearing this jacket. And I, upon closer investigation, he's wearing a chef coat in that scene. So I wonder if he's, like, moonlighting at this diner in the off season. It could that be. I mean, silly. Eh? His, his yeah, familiarity of, with the diner people, I think, is nice. Like, you have the feeling he gets the same thing every morning at the diner oh yeah totally with his coffee and cigarette like it's that standard uh thing you you see kind of older people do and it, i like that they continue the business of his nose bleeding yeah that's definitely good sweet sweet backs early bird special yes <laughs> lots of s's in special there's yeah. definitely an omelet named after him there <laughs> uh, I thought it would be funny, though. It's like when he's at the airport, because, um, like, he gets another hit with The Shining, and he's at, like, the little, like, bookstore. And I was just like, maybe I should get a book. And having the guy behind the counter be like, have you ever heard of Stephen King? He's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. There were some Stephen King books you could see in that, that airport yeah. room, which, which raises some interesting questions. What would happen if he had picked up a copy of The Shining? Yeah, I'd be like, this sounds oddly familiar. But it's interesting. I mean, in, in some of the books, Stephen King has himself as a character. Like, that's not too far-fetched. He has oh, that yeah. here. Oh, yeah, right. With the, uh... There's a um, close-up of Dick Halloran, and you'll see that he's got these little lines tattooed around his neck. And Melvin Van Peebles actually does have a tattoo of little perforations around his neck. And in French, it says, uh, coupe sous la ligne, which means, uh, that's terrible French, which means, like, cut along the dotted line. Mm. which is like an interesting like just kind of like a little like almost like a do not resuscitate thing kind of like it's a it's a it's a funny little bit of trivia but i noticed that little perforate little perforated like cut lines there and i I looked it up and that's uh, that's what it means but yeah i'm very happy to see dick reintroduced in this and and all the scenes of him in the airport trying to secure a flight uh back to uh back Back to the Overlook. Uh, it just it just reminded me how much more pleasant air travel was in the nineties. <laughs> yes. well, I mean, I have very specific uh, memories as a kid. You know, coming uh, flying back to the states from living overseas and having uh, my grandparents waiting for me as I get off the plane, and uh, that was so a nice cool. feeling. And, and and you don't have that any. I mean, it's just such more of a pain in the ass than it was. I mean, I don't think you can ever make airports completely enjoyable, but. Well, I, I'm reminded of there in the early 80s, there's an episode of SNL. This is in like the, the Mary Gross uh, era. And and I think the Dick Ebersol era, tail end of the Dick Ebersol era, where there's there's a, a fake Delta Airlines commercial where the slogan mm-hmm. is, it's like flying in a cattle, or no, it's like riding in a cattle car with wings. It's, it's the airport <laughs> slogan. Mm. And it was based on a real ad. And it's all these different people who work at the airport telling you how they're going to ruin your trip. <laughs> it's so good, and it gets more true with every year. But yeah, oh, and so in this one, 
Uh, Jack pretty much starts living simultaneously in the present and the past because we've had these flashbacks, we've had these hallucinations, we've had these psychic impressions. Um, but in in this episode, Jack just starts fully living in this kind of like half this ghost half world, uh, and the ghosts start having a really physical presence to the point where. Jack, up to this point, has done a really good job of being sober. We even see him early on at, like, his last in-person AA meeting, which is, I thought it was a pretty effective scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the ghosts just flat out make a bottle of Jack Daniels manifest in the hotel. Yeah. And, and um, that's it. That's the last thing he needed. I got it's, it's One of my favorite lines, though, is that he's so... Because you can definitely tell, like... He's a totally, he's a different person when he's on the sauce. Mm-hmm. And there, he's got this great line, though, where he goes, love means never having to say you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> and well, then he goes, that, Eric Siegel wrote that. And that was actually the guy who wrote the script for Love Story. Oh. And and uh, you have the um, the bar and the way that the drinks are lit to, like, really stand out and look attractive. And it's almost kind of supernatural with the lighting and you see Jack have this big grin, like, you know, like, uh Oh, the shit's going to start again. Yep. And yet uh, when, when Danny has the vision of his dad drinking again, like it, it's done very cheesy as like a, a circle <laughs> superimposed in, in the same shot. And it's like, he could have just shot cut to, to footage yeah. with a weird filter on it. Right. Yeah. It's that like swirly dirty. It's like a, like the effect of like going down the hallway reminded me of like, one of those like uh, like haunted house games you'd get for your like PC in like 1998. Yes. Yeah, like the seventh guest or something like that. Mm-hmm. The oh, you know the other thing about it is like when when he starts drinking, he starts busting out his W.C. Fields impression, <laughs> which I feel like even at the time, I feel like only film and comedy nerds like us would know who W.C. Fields is. Like, I love that touch. Like, W.C. Fields totally feels like the type of person Jack would know about and would bust out a cheesy impression of. It's like, like he was the walk-in of his day, uh, W.C. Fields was, in that way, of having a distinct voice and performance style. But I, I always I, I always have to wonder, if you don't have that frame of reference, what the hell do you think he's doing? It could also be a thing that, um, it could have been like his dad's thing, too. You know, I could totally see his dad like, getting drunk and watching old W.C. Fields movies. Yeah, kind of like laughing, like, uh, like maniacally and like nudging him, like, you get that one, son? <laughs> you know? So I returned his glass eye, and from that day forward, I was known as Honest John, yes. <laughs> So it's it's been a while, but I believe on the uh, audio commentary, Stephen King makes a point of of saying that he really wanted uh, Wendy to have a bit more agency. Uh, I mean, throughout the whole thing, but especially at the end when she's being chased around and that she gets a few licks in that she kind of uses her smarts. Do you think that's something they uh, they accomplished with this one? I think overall, I mean, she does as much as I love Shelley Duvall's performance in the first film and as much as she's a real emotional anchor for everything that goes on in, in, in Kubrick's version. I like that this version of Wendy is a bit is is a bit more active. Like we talked about it in the last episode where the scene where she's she's in, in the nightgown and is trying to come on to Jack and like I. There's a bit more spark to her, and and I liked it when that carries over into this film. Yeah, she doesn't have the, like, meekness towards Jack that Mm -hmm. Shelley has. 
Well, you know what I think part of it is that comes off on her performance is clearly, I mean, she has seen Jack at his worst. Uh, Even before Jack goes mad, which is a whole new level of of worse, but she had seen him at his worst before then. You can tell that this is a woman who has had to consider, well, what's my escape plan? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, when this. It's premeditated defense is what it is. Like she has been psychologically preparing for this day, even if she hasn't been doing it consciously. Right. You know, because, you know, once he goes to the dark side, it's like, I got to get my kid and get out of Dodge. Because it's going to be bad. And Um, yet, in this case, you know, they're going to be snowed in. So how can they make an escape? You know, there's that kind of. Yeah. All that set up in the beginning with the house, you know, pays off in the end. Yeah, and uh, I I have to say the um, once uh, once Jack goes off the goes off the deep end, it's uh it's pretty good. I mean his his descent is um you know you get a lot of like animalistic like fury you know just like, going to town on that hallway and the mallet and smashing up mirrors and walls and lights and shit. Um, and those are takes you do not get a lot of uh, you don't get a lot of takes on that one. You know you gotta kind of kind of nail them the first one or two times, but uh. But uh, yeah, I think Stephen Weber does really a uh, good job when he goes off uh, when his descent to madness is, is really, yeah, I think, well done. Well, when he's swinging that mallet around, the violence really does seem spontaneous. Like it, it doesn't look like he's trying to hit a prearranged part of the set that's meant to be damaged in a dramatic way. He looks like he's just beating the fuck out of that set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's just going to town. And then, like when um, when Dick Halloran shows up, it's like you don't think that thing's gonna connect, and like, boom, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and for network television, uh, yeah, definitely. And also, he gets Wendy too. I mean, I was not, I kind of forgot about that. Just to see that kind of like raw violence, especially against a woman, you know, it's it's in a domestic scene like that. You kind of, uh, I wasn't really prepared for that, but it, it definitely, uh, definitely sunk in. So something that so something that was a tremendous disappointment. So the previous episode ends with with the top with like in the front yard, the topiaries are alive. Jack is like surrounded, and then this episode, it's it's it just ends. Yeah, I know they come great out. cliffhanger, and then they're just the beginning of this. They're just topiaries again. Don't worry about it. It felt like uh, it could have ended with like the old timey cereal, like the ring, like will Danny get consumed by the evil topiaries? Ring. <laughs> Will Wendy get out of the office? Ring. Will Jack overcome his drinking? You'll have to wait for the next installment of The Shining. Yeah, it, that part doesn't work so well. Also, sometimes you see uh, Jack Torrance with this kind of monster makeup thing going on that I'm not sure is is that effective. Well, it is strange because, like, overall, the the monster makeup in this series is is pretty good. You know, I, we talked we talked about the the bathtub lady, but we get uh, we get a lot of the like hotel ghosts taking on these rather ghoulish appearances, and it's a pretty it's overall a pretty good effect. We also see Stephen King as a band leader with this ridiculous like Doctor Moreau style face <laughs> makeup on and a giant fake mustache. Which the more I saw it, the more I liked it. Uh, yeah, and it did take me a minute to realize that was Stephen King, but yeah, on Jack, I think it's totally unnecessary because in the end, Jack represents a, a very human evil that you know that evil of spousal abuse, child abuse, alcoholism. You don't need to put a monster face on him; he's already scary right. enough. I think that um, I think the makeup is it looks good, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really fit. But um, 
like when he gets uh like when he cracks him in the head when he's bleeding and like you know there's a chipped tooth i think like he looks pretty you know pretty pretty freaking scary there you know and also like from danny's point of view he's going to take on this kind of more monstrous component um but i think like literal making it like a literal monster was i don't think like you said i don't think that was entirely necessary although it is good makeup but um i think i think steven weber is kind of selling it well enough for the to the point where you, where you don't go that extra mile so have have either of you read the shining novel it's been a while but yes i wonder if you can contextualize something for me so in the kubrick version there's the infamous as it's referred to in some areas bj and the bear scene where you know you look into that hotel room and there's the guy in the tuxedo but then there's like the guy in the dog costume that's clearly uh. sex on him and in this movie there's a hotel employee who keeps putting on a werewolf mask but then seems to be acting out a sadomasochistic sort of puppy play thing with like one of the dead hotel managers that they really linger on. So clearly a person in a dog suit engaging in some sort of sexual activity is part of this story. Is that in the novel? Like what is the context for that in the novel or is it just supposed to be a disturbing psychosexual image? I think there is, like, implied that there is some, like, bondage stuff amongst, like, former staff in the past, I feel like. Or that there was, like, a lot of, like, debauchery in, like, the in the Roaring Twenties or Thirties or whatever. Uh, the Roaring Thirties weren't a thing, sorry, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and, I mean, so in, in the novel, there is a brief mention of a party guest in a dog costume. And oh, yet, yeah, okay. But it, it's not... Um, you know, it, it, as big a focus as in the movie or in, in, in the miniseries. And I think, you know, the the dog mask in the miniseries looks more like a werewolf to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's also it's also like a Don Post sort of werewolf mask, the kind that wouldn't have been available in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, it's like the howling. <laughs> but I can kind of forgive it just because it is so weird. It is definitely yeah. weird, yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's also one other cameo in that big uh, crowd scene, and um, guess who it is? Shawnee Smith. No, uh, Shawnee Smith is in there. Um, but there's also there's a quick um, Frank Darabont cameo. Oh. Well, you know Sam Raimi is the gas station attendant. I think in the first yeah, episode. I, that was awesome. Yeah, I love it when directors sneak their director <laughs> friends in for stuff. John Landis does that a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. But yeah, and and so like they they really do a good job escalating escalating the horror here. And like when they're only lifeline to the outside world, the radio uh, gets smashed. And and Je like Jack does it, but doesn't remember that he does it. And so he just uses that as an excuse to go after Danny, which is that was a that was very real. Yeah, definitely. This guy's coming apart, you know, and we're um we're 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 right alongside for the for the ride, better or worse. Um But yeah, there was a it was kinda of funny though, like it's almost like it's like that kind of like careful balance between like like scary and like campy where it's like it almost feels like the ghostly, ghostly, ghastly ghost band and they're swinging party, you know what I mean? Like well, almost yeah. like it felt 
little Scooby Dooey, which I, I I kind of appreciated. I wasn't sure if it was intentional or not. Um, there's definitely just like this little like campy level to it, which I kind of love. There's a deleted scene there that they actually filmed, but then it was considered too distracting from the main story, where all of a sudden like their um, skin would have been melting off their faces. Hmm. Oh, cool. And um, like some people caught on fire. There's some still photographs from some of this, and Stephen King as the uh, band leader got an especially gory death and it, it, it was considered i think a too intense and b it kind of distracts you from at this point you're in the last night of the mini series you know you're trying to focus on uh the main core uh thing of the dad going after the kid and the son and uh and them trying to escape and so forth that's interesting because they do kind of do this effect with like the main um the kind of like do like the gaunt like facial features where the like white, he kind of looks like he has like almost like kind of skeleton makeup, and it kind of looks like his like face lights up like a phosphorescence, you know, and it kind of has this kind of like surreal melty effect. Right. Um, so well, I think you know they also do a decent job of just making everybody feel trapped, like the whole the whole bit where they, where like you see this, like they open the windows and the snow is piled up to the windows, where they go, where where Wendy goes into the uh, garage to check the to check their snowcat or their snowmobile, and like its internal workings have been removed, <laughs> and no one can account for it. I mean, obviously Jack did it, but even yeah. Jack doesn't seem to know he did it. And I think so. So this this speaks to something is that. A lot is like the super, like with the exception of The Shining, like most of the uh, of The Shining itself, in Kubrick's version, there's a like all of the supernatural stuff you could make the argument is happening exclusively in the characters' minds. Um, e e even though the ending would make it seem like all the supernatural stuff is real on some level. But in this version, the supernatural stuff is overtly real to the point where the ghosts can make something out of nothing, like when they create the Jack Daniels bottles for, for Jack to find mm -hmm. and would seemingly be able to possess him or erase his memory when, when Jack destroys the radio and destroys the, the snowmobile. I don't know. Do you do you feel that's effective when the supernatural stuff is that overtly overtly real, or do you prefer it when when you could debate whether or not it's uh, simply his mental state? It's interesting because I was kind of going back and forth with that too. Because like Danny has like a vision of his like father drinking, and if it's like solely in the mind of Jack Torrance, then you know what I mean. But also Danny's got The Shining, so you know he's he's got some uh, he's got some chutzpah with the uh, you know. The ethereal but um yeah so i often wonder if like you know it's just purely supernatural on a level um of like kind of like a jack's like fantasy and madness uh but also too you know a lot of it's the uh, is the alcoholism and like the sh like when he kind of like shifts in and out when he's like you know when Danny's like i love you dad and he kind of was like you know ah struggling with the the two jacks we'll say <laughs> two jakes um <laughs> <laughs> the two jacks uh but yeah it's almost like uh and i also feel like that's kind of like a nod to like withdrawal in a way mm. like just that kind of like intensity that like intensity that goes into transformation you know yeah i mean all the, the ghost stuff being literal i'm not crazy about it on the other hand about jack um sacrificing himself at the end i think to me that really works as but you know, it's interesting. The sun Sorry. helps him snap out of it and, you know, go on. 
Well, it's interesting though, like you said, with uh, with Jack sacrificing himself. It's funny because like I almost got this like Abbott and Costello feeling of like um, of Delbert Grady and the other guy. It's like we can't shut up, dump the boiler. We're ghosts. You know what I mean? Like the ghosts. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's where it gets it, it gets like where, where the ghost being real kind of becomes unsatisfying because if they can yeah. make Eaker appear out of nowhere. And if they can make Jack destroy the radio, and and I'll even be charitable, we don't see Jack disassemble the snowmobile. We just assume he did it. Maybe the ghost did that. Why Mm. can't the ghost turn the safety valve if they can do so many other physical things? Yeah, can't they turn a couple of knobs? That boiler's covered in anti-ghost juice. Woo! (laughs) Yeah, it, 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 it is kind of a pill to swallow, but that that it's Danny that gets Jack to kind of snap out of it, I think is a really smart moment. And he, he is, Jack is someone that does love his family in the end, but he has a lot of uh, mental health um, maladies to, to, to work with. Uh, in addition to all this stuff happening in the overlook and, and being the stir crazy thing. I mean, after this past year plus of uh as of this recording of COVID-19 and the Delta variant I can sort of see the stir crazy stuff that relate to it a bit more um wanting to go to the house but in some cases you can't or it's not as safe we're the spirit hunters and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe some weeks we do linguistic analysis so the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine but so the changed meaning in Japanese it means to temper other times we get absolutely smashed so we take one shot every time Yusuke uses the ray gun one hour later this is the least coherent episode <laughs> Sarah you I think your apartment is you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. And yet, this movie has one of the worst like ending scenes I've ever seen, like the postscript stuff. I, I threw a remote at the TV as a, watching this as a high school student. Well, I, I don't mind the postcard stuff, but it is a little overindulgent. So, yeah, Jack, uh, so Wendy, Danny, and Dick, they get into Dick's big snowcat, and they, they, they ride out. And Jack stays behind and leaves the, leaves the safety, the emergency release valve of the boiler closed, so it explodes, takes the whole overlook with it. And the explosion itself I found very, very satisfying. Yep. But, but then we cut to 10 years later, and it's <laughs> Danny graduating from high school uh and it's and and you know wendy's in the audience and dick halloran shows up late and i do kind of like that they've stayed in each other's lives i thought that was kind of sweet but it just goes on and on and on and like oh so i guess yeah i guess tony was danny from the future for some reason and they have the little mental back and forth and and like if you're gonna do that i half expected to see like a ghost of young danny there like he's sending himself good vibes from the from the future but then the then we get that hand out of the grave moment which was unsatisfying where it shows the wreckage of the overlook you know 10 years later and it's and it's kind of and at first it's creepy because you see all these things you are so familiar with from that set you know that you see the the demolished playhouse you see the elevator you see the stairs the bar just it all charred up and broken and then there's that sign it's like you know oh new development coming soon a new overlook hotel and it's oh 
<laughs> you, <laughs> over, you don't Delphine, need to have was, a hand come out of the grave. Right. Because I mean, the grave just never dies. The line of dialogue that they bring back was kissing, kissing, that's what I've been missing. And they bring that back at the graduation. It's just awful. Well, I feel like that's got to be like from an old song from like the 30s or 40s, doesn't it? It was a line of dialogue that when um, the Wendy was flirting with Jack in in the 90s. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, again, like that kind of, what is that, like an incestual then that they, they bring back that? Well, yeah, it's brought in in so many contexts where I feel like they want you to think it's cute, but it does just make it seem weird. No, I watched it. I, I specifically remember watching that scene with my dad, and my dad looks at me and goes, what the fuck? <laughs> no. And I mean, to my dad, he's never read the Stephen King book. He's familiar with the Kubrick one, and some of the stuff he liked in this, like the mafia hit and and uh, some of the relationship stuff. But it's just, it doesn't, like, just end with the house exploding, man. Like, that's fine. Okay, so was, I just did some casual research. Looks like that's not from a song. It is just a line from this miniseries. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I also thought it was kind of funny that, like, you know, years later, I like, like, I like, I do like that Dick Halloran and it was like, you know, buds with the surviving Torrance family. Um, but it's oh, also actually, just kind of, that's it's just Dan graduating high school, right? That's, yeah, yeah. That's the moment, yeah. Okay, I guess. I mean, a lot of a lot of people grow up and graduate high school. <laughs> I don't know. It's not like he's getting like a, I don't know. A, it's just so, stupid, I guess. So something I've got to give this movie credit for. Uh, in in the end, Jack is the only person who dies. Uh, it, it happens so often in, in horror movies. If, in, if there's a black dude, he's just going to die. And we see Dick get the hell beat out of him by that croquet mallet. I was, like, shocked and delighted when he turned out like to be alive and, and he was able to get out of there too. Like that, that was a turn I, I found truly surprising. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, is it feels, uh, it definitely makes me feel better about the like magical Negro trope, which is something Stephen King is no stranger to. No, um, and not only that, but the way he, he sometimes writes the dialogue of, um, of black characters. It it's very um I mean, it's not as bad as like Uncle Remus or something, but it sometimes but it's very the hopeless. yeah very, the, the the spelling of the words and the it's a very certain I mean the magical Negro thing that is uh on the money so we got to wrap stuff up here I got some stuff going on but we got um I'm gonna close the door give me one second. <laughs> Close the door on those ghosts. You gotta close the door, count to ten. They're not real. They can't hurt you. It's like pictures in a book. But it turns out they can hurt you. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. They they need they need the power of the shining to cross over, which not not a bad idea to introduce late in the film, I suppose. But they can't dump the boiler. We can't <laughs> dump the boiler. Our ghosts. Our hands just go right through the handle. Jesus. Jesus Louise. Oh, and the ghosts were racist in this one too. Although they did, they oh, did yeah. tone down the language, which yeah, which you know for for TV, yeah, you got to you got to do that, right? So oh, overall, with the the Shining, the Night Three, to me, I think it's the least successful of all three. But you've watched this much, you might as well finish it. I'll barely give it a sequel. Yes, I I'm going to give it a sequel. Yes, like I over both this and the series, I overall 
found very satisfying. Its flaws are glaring, but I find that the good stuff out, outweighs the bad. And I got I to gotta give it points for Dick Halloran surviving. Uh, yes, the ending, the, the postscript is so overindulgent and unnecessary. Uh, but hey, like you can just, like you can step out. You can step out before that stuff even happens. Yeah, you can just like... turn it off. Yeah. Um, sequel, yes. Uh, the like, like you said, uh, Thrasher. The, the, the. Yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely some stupid bits here. Um, but you know, I, as a whole, it is a, it is a good um, fleshing out of, of, uh, of Stephen King's story. And Mick Garris is just the person to do it. And there's also a few references to the uh, Kubrick film with uh, Wendy opening the window to kind of slide out, and it's just buried in snow. And and uh, Dick wearing the kind of same kind of jacket uh, Scatman Crothers wore. Um, yeah, sequel. Yes, there's. Yeah, there's some clunky bits for sure, but it's a uh, it's an enjoyable watch for the most part. Okay. Oh, interesting uh, bit of trivia. This yes. runs at 273 minutes. You rearrange that, what do you get? Two three seven. Mama ma. Oh, and if you want to just see something fun, uh, there's a clip online. Online, it's really easy to find. Cortland Mead, who played Danny Torrance, went on late night with Conan O'Brien to promote yeah. his miniseries. It's yeah. a hilarious interview. He's just a big old goofball, and he and Conan O'Brien start playing off of each other. But it's like it's in a real honest, unaffected little kid kind of yeah, way. Yes, so I watched it, that clip. It's it a great clip. And you know, uh, Cortland Mead is a, an actor no longer, um, but he just got married recently, and he has a kid. So I'm not, I, I think he's might be doing photography professionally now or something. Um, Interesting. But there you go. So, yeah. Um, as far as what you're watching, I had a chance to sit down and watch a uh, bit of a, I think what, what was the name of it? Um, I watched something weird on uh, on Disney Plus. It was an Ariana Grande concert, and some of it was animated, and it was performed at the Hollywood Bowl. Interesting. So they used uh, an orchestra and uh, even a choir for for some of it, and it was fine. I think you know the orchestra with her music. It kind of sounds like a lullaby to me, anyway. So <clears throat> it works with those arrangements and her and her brother on the stage. They you know write all their songs. And um, but the animated parts just look really cheap. It's like they put a uh, a rotoscope cartoon filter on live action and have her driving a car or running through clouds or it. And and when you see the Disney name, even if it is Disney Plus, um, you I think you expect something a bit better as far as the animation. But they didn't have a lot of money to do this, and they could have just done it just as this concert with with no audience, of course, because COVID. But um, I think the animation is just unneeded and and to my eye looked poor. So if you look up Ariana Grande on Disney Plus, you can watch that. Not Ariana Grande, I'm an idiot. Billie Eilish. Ah. So <laughs> hey, I'm Billie Eilish. Yes. At our guitar. I wish oh, I had a sandwich right now. It sounds the same. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, really, like her James Bond theme came out way, way before the movie was supposed to come out, and that's been delayed a few times. Why, why yeah, can't y'all? This year they're delaying it still. 
Why can't y'all listen to good music like we used to? Where's your Blink 182s? <laughs> the Blink 182s in the green days? When you when you make it sound old timey, you just put an S after everything. <laughs> Blink 182. Whatever happened to Blink One through 181? Just don't get you it. Wonder, a lot of blinking. Oh, well, it's did a you reference see? to Turk 182, and there was already a band called Blink. That's why they added the numbers. <laughs> All right, so uh, you guys, uh, either of you guys watch, um, or either of you two watch uh, Rick and Morty? Yes. I, I watch it, but I think I'm a few episodes behind. Yeah, there, there's a clip that came out of the, I think it's in the season finale, or maybe they're just trolling people, but it's live action, and they have Christopher Lloyd playing Rick. It's really weird. No. Oh, I have seen yeah. that clip, and yeah, there is a lot of speculation. Is this going to actually be in the episode, or is this just a promo? They're also working on a Rick and Morty movie, and so maybe it's related to that. Like, it, it just, yeah, it's really strange to see him burp, and he just says, like, one line of dialogue, but he's dressed <laughs> like um, Rick Sanchez and... Uh, his hair's not blue, though. It's it's just his regular kind of shock of white you're, hair. You're not going to get him to sit in a makeup chair to have his hair dyed blue. Not at that age, no. Yeah, but, interesting hey. bit. He uh, came into our, our restaurant not too long ago for like a good couple of weeks because they were doing a workshop out here for Shakespeare and Company. So I had the pleasure to serve him lunch a couple of times. Cool. Did you yeah, order the very... same thing every time? Uh, close. Yeah. Jambalaya. Huh? I need the jambalaya, Marty. His voice but, sounds exactly like that. <laughs> I guess like a talking voice. I bet. And um, I mean, you want something weird? Look at the origins of Rick and Marty, where it was a, a much darker cartoon for Channel 101. Oh no, I've seen that. The real life. There was like the real life adventures of Doc and Marty, or the brand new adventures yes. of Doc and Marty. Oh yeah. Oh no, that's dark as hell. Yes. Um, Not for the faint of heart. If should you go seek, seeking that out. Yeah, oh, wow. even though the animation looks like it's an MS Paint. Like, well, it's, it's <laughs> intentionally crude. Yes. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, okay. So, um, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, I recently watched... Um, uh, what should I talk about? <laughs> um, I, uh, I recently watched the uh, this amazing film. It's called Tribulation 99, Alien Anomalies Under America. Um, this came at the recommendation of Rodney Asher, director of Room 237, and it's directed by this guy Craig Baldwin, and he kind of does this, like, pseudo-documentary essay film clip found footage, like, hodgepodge of, like, conspiracy theories and, like, actual political conspiracies about, like, aliens underneath the Earth and, like, uh, President Truman writing in UFOs and fucking, like, you know, PSYOPs and MKUltra. It's just, like... Uh, it's like if Chris Marker was like on like bad acid trip, like knife fighting with the cops in his underwear and like ranting at the top of his lungs, it would look like this movie. Like if you, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's just like perfectly amazing amalgamation of, uh, of of just crazy archival footage and like vintage sci-fi films and shows and stuff like that. It's one of the coolest things I've seen about like Harp. It's like this raving, ranting um, narrative about killer bees and aliens and, you know, cattle mutilation and, you know, hollow earth and doomsday. It's crazy. Um, it's, yeah, I see it to believe it. It's called Tribulation 99, Alien Anomalies Under America. It's so cool. Neat. And uh, is, where can people find that? Is that streaming or? 
I had to buy the DVD on Amazon. Um, apparently, the work of Craig Baldwin is not easy to find, but it is uh, damn awesome. I think it might be streaming somewhere on Fandor, actually. If you have Fandor via Amazon Prime, you might be able to find it. That's a neat after. Look into that. Um, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So I watched, uh, directed by Craig Gillespie from a screenplay by Dana Fox and Tony McNamara, uh, I watched Cruella, the 101 Dalmatians sort of prequel. Yes, I, I saw that in the theater. Um, what did you think? It, 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 was, it was uneven. This movie has some truly brilliant stuff in it, and it has some awful stuff in it. And I think what... I would say it's it's good, not great, and everything that keeps it from being great is everything that ties it into other established Disney properties. If this was just a weird movie, a weird anachronistic movie about an eccentric woman who like engages in a weird fashion revenge heist in the in the 60s in London and did not connect to 101 Dalmatians in any way, this would have been great. But everything that connects it to 101 Dalmatians is either a distraction that slows the movie down or raises very unsettling questions about 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) And if you got all the way to the end, you probably know what that unsettling question is. At the end, they really, really force the 101 Dalmatians um, stuff. And yet this movie did well enough that they're thinking of doing a sequel. And I'm, like, I'm not quite sure what else you would tell uh, of this story unless you're just making more shit up. I mean, they did a second Maleficent movie. That's just, it's not bad, but it's like, it's totally not needed. I mean, you and, might as, you might as well just do another live action remake point. of 101 Dalmatians with this cast. Cause I think that I do like, I do love the performances. Although I will say, I will say this about the cast. So you got, you have Emma Stone as Cruella and she is, she is fantastic. I absolutely mm-hmm. love everything about her performance and her look in this. That being said, virtually every other character watching this, my impression was, Oh, you wanted someone from the mighty Boosh to play this role. Like, oh, you wanted Noel Fielding, but you couldn't get Noel Fielding, so we got this guy. You wanted Richard Iowade, but you couldn't get Richard Iowade, so we got this guy. And that is virtually every supporting character. It's it's as if they were told, just do it like that person from the Mighty Boosh. I mean, they they do have a character in here that's, like, openly queer, at least as open as you can be in a Disney live-action Oh, as he says, my name is Art, as in work of... I loved that character. I and loved yeah, I art. Art can have funny that like the like purpose of like Corella Deville, like her like the reason she's a, like a villain is because she's a woman who wants a coat. Like that's it. You know what I mean? Like that's the reason why she exists. Um But in, so I, in this movie, and I'm not making this up, and this is a spoiler real quick, maybe skip ahead a minute. Um do you care if I spoil this, Alex? Oh, I'm I don't care. Yeah. Uh, so the reason why she has a thing against Dalmatians is her, uh, uh, she was raised, you know, as by a single mom and her mom is, is killed by Dalmatians. It's so <laughs> forced. That's one of those distracting things that I wish yeah. I had done. Mauled by Dalmatians. Like, when people started leaking that from the, the press screenings, people thought they were, they were joking. Yeah, um, I would have thought that. <laughs> but like, she clearly doesn't have a problem with them because she she adopts the three Dalmatians who killed that woman. 
yes, who you later her, find out yeah. isn't her biological mother. Right. That's a whole other unnecessary turn that the story takes. They do have a few more Again, twists than they need at the end of the movie. The who wants a coat. <laughs> right. I mean, the movie is a bit long. It has a few too many twists. Um, I think like the, the costumes are pretty interesting. Uh, oh, I no, think... the costumes are amazing. Yeah, I... And, like, honestly, the best parts of the movie are when she does these stunts to upstage the Baroness, the fashion designer who she both works for but is trying to ruin. Those scenes are so fun and so creative. I wish the whole movie had just been about, like, her fashion war against the Baroness. It's like, like half of it feels like Oliver Twist, half of it feels like uh, The Devil Wears Prada, and half of it feels like Ocean's Eleven. Like, and it... the and the constant needle drops where like sometimes uh, it's a great bit of obscure music from the period. And sometimes it's a song that is not obscure. That's too well known. That wouldn't come out for two decades until after the time, the movie is, is placed and big mistake. They end it with sympathy for the devil, which as I said on a previous episode, quoting Matt Besser, that's the song a cop would pick. <laughs> like if you're going to do sympathy for the devil, Make it like a cover performed by Jonah Jett or something and really like change it up. Make it a cover yeah. performed by Dalmatians where it's just barking. <laughs> I'm a dog of wealth and taste. <laughs> but no, I mean, that movie, I think it was better than I was expecting and had, you know, good production value. Oh, yeah. um, so. like, I, this is this is a movie that I probably will watch again uh, within within a year. It's right. just good enough. I just wish it wasn't weighed down by the needs of Disney franchising. I wish it could be its own thing. I tried to they watch them. Gone. Them. Go on. They should have just gone fully dark with it and just made her like this, like you know, Buffalo Bill esque, like you know, super villain. Well, they and, do establish yeah. that she's a sociopath and that, like, like that's. I mean, yes, yeah, self-diagnosed, but from the, okay, that's so. That's the other thing. The Baroness turns out to be her biological mother, and this is, and she apparently inherited her sociopathy from her. And that's another thing, is that the whole reason the Baroness gave her, like, gave her up, is that the Baroness didn't want a a, a baby because that means there would be someone else in her husband's life. And being a sociopath, she needs to be the only person in any, like the only person in any given like dynamic. The thing, the thing is she's wealthy and well-connected. She could have gotten an abortion. Yes. Yeah. This was back in the days where no problem. You just take a trip to South America and come back a month or two later. And no one has to know. And the rules of polite society mean no one will bring it up. So it's huh. it's one of those things. Her going through with childbirth, because that's the other thing. It's like she 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 gives like the baby to her butler and says, "Take care of it." Yep. It's all a day, all in the all in a day's work for a butler, you know. Certainly. Um. So. We, uh, yeah, so let's wrap things up here. So next time we're going to talk about Dr. Sleep and wrap up our look at the Shining series. Uh, not great box office, but it had an extended cut uh, and has Ewan McGregor, uh, has a pretty good cast based on a book that Stephen King did called Dr. Sleep. Um, I, I've, I've read elsewhere that people think the movie would have done better had the connection to the Shining a bit more obvious in the title. Hmm. It's possible. Because Dr. Sleep kind of sounds like the name of a kid's movie. 
Right. Yeah. I think like it was marked. I think like it would like subtly say like a sequel to The Shining, on like the, some of the posters and stuff. But um, right. part of the Shining saga. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not a sequel. It's a Shinequel. Okay. It's a Shinequel. <laughs> uh, so uh, Matt, you can follow me on Twitter at matwbt. Go to um, sequelcast2.com to get all the episodes and leave us a good review on the Apple Podcast app, the Google Podcast app, whatever you listen to us on. All of that helps with the downloads and the ranking and the visibility and all this stuff. Um, Thrasher? Right, well, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at WT2Art. Also, our music is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check his stuff out at markwiththec.com. And also, by the time this episode drops, the At the Shrine of Authorist Kickstarter has probably wrapped. But you ought to check it out uh, anyway, because we did hit the full color map uh, stretch goal. So I will be doing all those full color maps. Uh, and I'm ta- I, I, am good, I am talking with the publisher to see if there's going to be any late pledge options. So there may be some late pledge options. So if you missed the main bulk of the Kickstarter, but you still want the books, uh, you might still be able to contribute to, to, to effectively pre-order those. So check out At the Shrine of Authorus. And Alex? Authorus with a Y! With a Y, yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Crab Nebula 1914 There's also the coolest YouTube channel in town, kids. It's called The Trailer Project. You want to know what's on there? Go and find out. No, it's got trailer commentaries and cool experimental videos that I've been making over the past couple of years, and they're pretty damn nifty. There you go. So, um, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Same. It's time to take your medicine, you little pup. Name Danny, my pajamas are made from sadness. <laughs> <laughs>